Good morning. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson. Welcome to the Leeward campus. And uh, as we tell you every week, whenever you're visiting, we're really glad you're here. And hope you sense that you're loved and welcomed here, um, wherever you are in your spiritual life and journey. I hope you sense that. Well, as Christians, uh, one of the things we perhaps fear most is talking to others about Jesus. Um, and uh, I don't know anyone who captures this better with a bit of humor is one of our favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan. Watch just a moment. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I like to talk to you about Jesus. <laughs> he, he better not. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. Does anything make you feel more uncomfortable than some stranger going, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus? <laughs> yeah, I'd like you not to. You could say that to the Pope. I want to talk to you about Jesus. You'd be like, easy, freak. I keep work at work. I have to admit, that was a good impression of the Pope. Oh, he's great. He is so good. Well, all of us, I think, wherever we are, struggle with this idea of um, sharing our faith. Uh, Growing up in a Christian home, uh, I came to faith in Jesus Christ early on, and I have to say that I had this tension. You ever had that feeling? It's like I heard when I was a young boy, like, I need to talk to others about Jesus. And as I heard that, I'm like, I don't want to do that, right? I mean, it's like we have this struggle, don't we? And that's never left me. You know, I'm a pastor, for goodness sakes, and I'm getting older. But I remember in high school, uh, as a Christian, I knew I was supposed to talk to my friends about Jesus. It seems like what Jesus wanted me to do, and yet it was like, I don't want to do that. And I remember one time actually wearing a small button in that day about something about Jesus. I didn't do that very long. Um, it was really hard for me to do, but I've always struggled with that. And, and, and one of the dynamics of my story is that uh, after high school and then college, I uh, joined an organization, a Christian organization that was devoted to talk to others about Jesus on the college campus. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you think I should have this all down by now. Uh, but I remember even, and again, college students were engaging and often open to talk about spiritual things, but I remember every time I talked to someone about Jesus, I sort of had these butterflies in my stomach. Um, and as a pastor, over the years, I still have that. So sharing the gospel, sharing the good news with others, often confronts us with fear, doesn't it? Sometimes I think it's a fear of failure, like I'm going to look like a complete idiot. All of us have that fear. Or maybe I'll be misunderstood. Um, Maybe I'll be perceived as being stupid for believing that. You ever felt like that? Or naive. Or I might not have the answer to the zinger question. One of my bright fellow students has, right? Kind of that zapper, that checkmate question where I go, I don't know. How are we to face this kind of fear? This is a fear that followers of Jesus have. It often threatens us to silence and missing the great joy of sharing the good news with others. The morning's text that we're going to look at really helps us here. It really addresses our fear that often silences us. And I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of John, verse, or chapter 20. And if you've been with us for all you know, we've been exploring how Jesus spoke to others about faith. The conversations he had that John gives us as a first-hand witness of his best friend on earth, Jesus' BFF. No doubt about it. And Jesus encountered the religious and the non-religious, and yet he had conversations of faith, and he encourages us to do what he did, 
That is, to tell others about what matters most in life. That is simply sharing our faith. So if you're here this morning, and I know some of you come and you're not sure about the Christian faith, and again, we love having you here. We hope you'll engage with us and learn with us. And maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Let me just say, this conversation today for a pastor and for all of us as Christians, it may seem kind of odd to you. (laughs) I mean, telling others about our faith, let me just say that Jesus commands us to do this. And we believe that the gospel is the greatest news imaginable. It is how all of us as human beings experience the life we were created to live, a life of joy, of meaning, of purpose, of wholeness. And we believe Jesus tells us how to do that and makes it possible. So I want us all, wherever we are this morning, to look at what John says in this wonderful text. And I would like to raise two questions as we look at this final exploration in our series entitled Jesus Listens. The two questions I like to raise, and I think this text raises, is first of all, why do we fear this? Why do we fear this? And secondly, I think the probe into the idea is, why does fear not stop us? Why does fear not silence us? First, let's look at why do we fear? Now, I want you to enter into the first century. I want you to imagine with me the story. Because remember, John, who writes it, is now an aged man with dim eyes and a shaky hand, exiled for persecution for his faith on the island of Patmos. So John is an elderly man with dim eyes and shaky hands, and he writes this text as he looks back on this moment. It's an unforgettable moment in his life. So imagine going back in time with John many years. Imagine that you are a young man and you have devoted yourself now for several years to a cause you believed in. A cause that would overthrow the oppression of Rome, that would bring wholeness to your people. You left your job. Can you imagine that? You left your family. You rearranged all your life priorities. You invested your heart fully into the movement that this carpenter from Nazareth, this rabbi Jesus, had called you to. You believed you were going to change the world. Now suddenly, you find yourself in an unthinkable place. On that first Easter evening, in the first century, about 33 AD, you find your world that was a dream, now a nightmare. Your leader has been betrayed by one of your best friends. He has been brutally tortured, beaten beyond recognition, and brutally executed as a criminal. You now face the repercussions of being a wanton man of the inner circle of this rebel, not only by the Roman Empire, but by the religious authorities of your day. So what would you be feeling? Grand disillusionment, despair, and I want to suggest that you'd be feeling massive fear. You would find yourself in a sinkhole of fear that is sinking deeply, and the world is caving in around you. And this is the question you'd be asking yourself. When am I next? What about me? For three days, imagine John and the closest disciples of Jesus being hunkered down in Jerusalem behind locked doors. And every time the door is knocked on, terror strikes your heart. This is where we find ourselves in this text. 
John invites us into this terrorizing moment. Look with me at verse 19. John says, on that evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, this is really important to John, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he says to them, basically, shalom, or peace be with you. Now, John wants us to know that everyone in that room is scared spitless. And for good reason. They were absolutely vulnerable. They were absolutely powerless. And they were hated by all the authorities. Not for what they had done, but what they had believed and what they were proclaiming. Why do we fear? Just like in the first century followers of Jesus, they feared. Because the good news they proclaimed of Jesus, some receive it as good news, but others see it as bad news. Because Jesus tells us the, na- the nature of the Christian faith, by its very essence, is polarizing. For some, the faith we cherish and proclaim is inviting to them. But for some, it is threatening. The Apostle Paul, who faced martyrdom, ultimately, for his, for his faith, writes to his protege Timothy in the first century in 2 Timothy 3.2 and says to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a Christ-like life, or to follow Christ in faithfulness, will be persecuted. Not maybe, but will be. Many of the early followers of Jesus in the first century were persecuted. We know that most of them were martyred for their faith, not because they were bad people. Quite the contrary. They were good citizens but because of what they believed and what they said. And this is not new. Today, more followers of Jesus around the globe, friends, are being raped, tortured, beaten, terminated from their jobs, imprisoned and executed for their faith in Jesus than any time in history. And we hear increasing reports of China, for example, and many of us who are tracking Iran Remember the incredible number of Christians who are imprisoned, like our dear friend, Farshid Fatah. So I'm going to encourage all of us to continue to hold our brothers and sisters around the globe in prayer, who are behind locked doors, who are facing this reality in an unprecedented way in the world. But I want to talk about us for just a moment. I seldom do this, but I think it's important here in this text. Presently, Christians in the U.S. are not being imprisoned for their faith, and I'm grateful for that. But we have to be discerning that in our time, the winds of increasing hostility are blowing blowing across this land. Increasingly, irresponsible caricatures of narrow-minded, bigoted Christian people are being perpetuated in a way that I never experienced as a young boy in our media and our film. And today, if you've been following even some of the news, very seldom is this reported, but it has been in a few cases, there is a totalitarian political correctness in our universities that is growing. For example, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a marvelous Christian group, have been kicked off of campuses and are increasingly kicked off of campuses, not because they are bad people, but because of their bad, unacceptable belief. This was unimaginable 10 years ago, and we need to say it in a responsible way. 
We are seeing an overreaching government in many dimensions of society lowering the wall of separation of church and state and eroding gradually, alarmingly, religious freedom. I don't know if you followed recently a Houston mayor who recently, at least at a test case, wanted to subpoena pastors for their messages in the church. This is in a country where so many men and women have shed their precious blood to give all of us the freedom of conscience, of religion, and speech. It is time, perhaps, that God is telling us, His church, to a time of greater repentance, greater humility, prayerfulness, and yes, loving courage. So why do we fear sharing our faith? Because sometimes people around us reject us and ridicule us because of who we love and who we, what we believe. And let's just remember, all of us, that true Christian faith has never been about our comfort, okay? Nor has it ever been about a popularity contest or being cool. It is a gracious, unwavering faithfulness to truth. To the one who is truth, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The courageous Protestant reformers are a model for us in our time, I think increasingly so in our world. Martin Luther understood the hatred and hostility for his faith. He knew ultimately, though, that his ultimate enemy, his ultimate adversary was not a human being, was not people. This is important to keep in mind. But Satan himself. And in one of his classic hymns, he reminds us of an important truth. A mighty fortress is our God. That's the God we serve today. These are the words he pens. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and he is armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And Luther concludes with these words. Perhaps... The theme of the great courageous reformers. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. See, fear need not paralyze us, nor should it lead us to passivity or to muted silence in our time. This text reminds us of this. And on the first Easter evening, Jesus' followers were absolutely paralyzed with fear. They were hunkered down. And Luke's parallel gospel account, which I encourage you to read, brings more texture to this moment. It's in chapter 24 of Luke, verse 37. And one of the things we understand is they're not only afraid of the religious authorities, they are freaking out when Jesus literally walks through the door without it opening. The patristic writers, the early writers like Augustine, really make a big thing of this in the commentaries. There's no question in my mind, and, and Luke will say this. He says, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. You know, I don't know if you're a fan of the paranormal movies. Anybody like that? I mean, I didn't see it because my son, who's a movie critic, amateur, he said, don't see it, Dad, you'll never survive it. 
Anybody here paranormal? I mean, it's like that. I mean, can you imagine they're already scared spitless and all of a sudden the resurrected Jesus in his bodily form walks through the door and stands there. Would that freak you out? This is fear on steroids in this text. But something takes place to change it. And notice what Jesus does in the text. Look at verses 20 through 23. This has such relevance for us, for me. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. This word here is, they are just overwhelmed with joy. Jesus said to them again, Shalom, be with you, Shalom. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now, in these four verses, I see three reasons why we must not fear. Why we must not be feared into silence. Now, again, I'm talking of a loving boldness, right? A gracious one, not a mean-spirited one or anything like that. I hope you understand that if you're newer to Christ's community. But we are called to proclaim the gospel, to speak it. So how do we overcome often our fear to communicate our faith to others? First, you'll notice in the text we have seen Jesus. That was the turning point. See, the joy of the empty tomb ultimately eclipses any fear you and I may face in life, period, including sharing our faith. Think of the most fearful thing you're afraid of. You take that fear right to the empty tomb and what the resurrection means for that. This is what John is saying. See, the empty tomb, and hear me carefully, the empty tomb is not only the irreplaceable foundation of the Christian faith, It is also the ultimate antidote for any paralyzing fear you and I may be facing today or this week. Maybe you're paralyzed with fear or something. Take it to the empty tomb. Secondly, you'll notice we have been sent. Jesus says this in verse 21. He gets the disciples' eyes off themselves and he puts them back on mission. And he says to them, again, and three times in this whole chapter, you'll see this word peace be with you. Jesus says this, notice, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. In other words, Jesus says, get your eyes on the mission I've called you to. Jesus came with a mission of redemption, right? To redeem God's broken world. And Luke's gospel tells us a part of that, a vital part of that, as a cosmic redeemer as well as a personal redeemer, is that Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. And we are called to that too. All of us who know Christ, who are apprentices of Jesus, are sent to be his hands and feet and, yes, his mouth. We are ambassadors for Jesus, Paul says. And ambassadors have a distinct kingdom life. They live out in all dimensions of life, and they have an important message to communicate. Both are important in being ambassadors. Now, third, notice and get the third reason why we don't need to be paralyzed by fear, why it doesn't stop us, is we have been supernaturally empowered. This is where Jesus goes in verses 22 through 23. Now, this text is often misunderstood because uh, there's a bit of complexity in the interpretation. So let me walk through it just a moment for you because um, if, if I've heard a text taught and preached wrong, it's this one, okay? So let me just try to unpack what the original text says just for just a moment. What's going on here is that Jesus tells us he is given a supernatural empowerment to share what matters most, not the only thing that matters, but what matters most. 
So Jesus uses language his listeners would have heard in the Hebrew or Aramaic text. He describes himself as the creator-redeemer. He connects creation and redemption here. Notice the text says, if you have your Bible open, I want you to look at this for a moment. It says in the English, Jesus breathed on them. Now, the translators of English are trying to make the flow of language better. So they include on them. Do you see that? But the original language does not have on them. It's not in the Greek. It's just an important Jesus breathed. Now, what's going on here? He says, Jesus breathed, and then it says, without a break, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the words breathe in spirit to his listener's mind, who knew Hebrew and Aramaic, are the same word, ruach. Okay, that's the language used. And it's used of the spirit and breathing. It's the same thing. Okay, so this has rich Old Testament meaning. Now, again, John translates it into Greek because he's writing in Greek. The original listeners would have understood Old Testament connections by this word breathe and spirit. They would automatically have connected Genesis 2 and Ezekiel 37. Or Genesis 1, 2. Sorry, chapter 1, verse 2. And here we have God in his triune creation, Father, Son, and Spirit, breathing over the water. The Spirit hovers over the water in original creation. So what Jesus is doing, he's connecting himself as creator and redeemer. He's also using the word that Ezekiel used in Ezekiel 37. When the dry bones, a picture of dead people that are really dead, that God brings again to life. He redeems them, right? That's the picture. So the language of Ezekiel 37, repeat it over again, is ruach, ruach, ruach. Breathe, breathe the Spirit, okay? And then Jesus uses the same word with Nicodemus about being born from above, the same kind of language. My point is this, and it's important why I'm taking the time, is that here in this text, we see the Trinitarian reality of new creation. You see the explicit emphasis of the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Jesus emphasizes the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Remember, he has already unpacked the Comforter is going to come in the Upper Room Discourse. So what is going on here is that Jesus is connecting himself as the creator-redeemer, and he is emphasizing the empowerment not only of the Holy Spirit, yes, very much so, but the whole Trinitarian God. This is super, supernatural empowerment. This is game-changer stuff. And what he does here with the Holy Spirit is he gives us an appetizer of what is to come. Luke will say, don't witness... Don't be my witness until you are powered from on high. You need supernatural power to do this. And so the whole book of Acts opens what? In Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses, but what? After the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here Jesus gives his disciples an appetizer of Pentecost in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes with power. The primary emphasis, there are many emphasis of the Holy Spirit coming in Pentecost is to take the gospel by proclamation to the world. It is to empower us to be a bold witness for Christ everywhere to the ends of the earth. This is what Jesus is doing. He emphasizes to his disciples that we are his witnesses. And Jesus, here in this text, in verse 23, is very confusing. So let me just highlight it very briefly. And then we're going to go to applications. I just needed this text. It's so misused, so abused, so misinterpreted. So let me just highlight this. Verse 23, Jesus is not saying that we have the power to forgive sin. The scriptures are so clear in that only God can forgive sin alone. What he is saying is when we proclaim the gospel, 
the very power of God that brings forgiveness and new creation life to a human heart. When we proclaim that gospel, God forgives. It is the power of our message and not our power to forgive someone. Because the greatest need any of us has, me included, by far me included, is to be forgiven of my sin. That's the greatest human need. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can ever reach that need. Nothing else. That's why it's the one thing that matters most is to proclaim that message to others. For it is the power of God that brings transformation in the gospel itself when we proclaim it. That is true of both your and my temporal flourishing and eternal flourishing because our eternal destiny rests on whether we've embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, period. That's what Jesus says. There is much writing on the line in this text. The beauty of the gospel is captured in a hymn we often sing. And I love these words. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Remember John opens the gospel in John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God, what? Who takes away the sin of the world. And then he ends his gospel. This is Jesus. Believe in him and you'll have life. But what can make me what? Whole again. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is the gospel message we have the privilege of proclaiming to others. The only message that brings temporal human flourishing and eternal human flourishing. Yet we struggle to share our faith with others, don't we? I do. I do. Let me encourage all of us in this area that sharing our faith with others is not as scary as we often think. There is such great joy in sharing with others what God has done in our life. Friends, this is God's word. It's not ours. There's no way we could do it on our own. This is what this text teaches. You have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural endeavor. He uses us, yes, he longs for us to partner with him and to experience the blessing, the joy of sharing. But you and I can't convert anyone. We can't figure out all the right questions, even all the right answers. This is not about having all the right words. This is about being faithful to God and being filled with the Holy Spirit and being empowered and living a faithful present in our life and our words every day. So let's share the good news. I want to raise three questions of application. I hope this challenges you as much as it challenges me. Because I can find refuge. I'm a pastor. You know, people shut down when when I say I'm a pastor. (laughs) I'm always scared to tell my neighbors I'm a pastor because I think they want, you know, they're gonna think I'm going to recruit them to church. You know, I have all kinds of excuses in my head, right? I'm an introvert. I need this message. And you do too. This text compels us to address fear and not be a silent witness, but to be a graceful, graceful bold witness for Christ in our world. Let me suggest three questions for your reflection. I'd like you to write these down and pray about it this week. First, are we listening? Loving others means truly listening to them at heart level. This means for all of us that we need to have time for face-to-face, real-life relationships, not just texts and tweets, okay? What is going on in their life, do you know? Your friends at school, colleagues at work, your family, your neighbors? What fears are they facing in their life? Do you know? What hurts and disappointments and desires are on their heart? 
these precious image bearers that are so valuable to God and so worthy of being loved regardless of if they have faith or non-faith? What questions are they asking as they navigate life in their messy life in the messy broken world? Do you know that? See, we don't have ulterior motives, but we have an ultimate motive. And that they would flourish as God designed them to flourish. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ will allow a human being to flourish now and forever. Only. And Paul says in the Romans, how will people flourish? How will they know unless someone tells them in love? How will they? We must first begin with prayer. Who are you praying for? In your life. Praying that God would reveal himself in a fresh way. That he would show his kindness. Remember Paul says it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance or change. Isn't that beautiful? And gracious provision of life. Who are you praying for in your life? See, sharing the good news means we first become good listeners. But it also means we become good observers. And that's the second question. Are we watching? Not only are we listening, are we watching? Do we have eyes to see? As we go through our day and encounter others, are we just so busy and self-absorbed? We don't have the energy or margin to see the opportunities for spiritual influence that are being presented to us right in front of our face. Pastor Andy Stanley reminds his congregation to look for three conversational clues. I think these are really good for opportunities to share about Christ with others. First, he says, when someone you meet says something like, I'm not from around here or I'm new to this community, this is an opportunity for you. To tell them just about your relational meaningfulness of your faith community and invite them to to come and check your church out. People who are newer to community long for community, right? Secondly, he says, when people say things like in your life, your friends at school, you know, things aren't really going well in my life. I won't use all the language sometimes we use. This is an opportunity for you to just be in a short spiritual conversation how your faith in Jesus has helped you get through that. Simply like that. Maybe ask if you can even pray for them. I have never had someone say to me if I've asked them to pray, no, I don't want you to do that. Never no matter how far they are from their faith. Never. And I've often found that's an open door of love. It's not weird. Third, when someone says, I wasn't prepared for this, a window opens for you. To empathize with them and say your faith in Christ and your faith community has been so helpful to you. I look for the gap. What do I mean by that? I look and listen for the gap. All of us had this gap in our heart, in our longings, between the life we were created to live and the life we long to live. And I listen for that gap, and I just say, you know, Jesus has helped me close that gap. Increasingly, every day, I'm living more of the life I long to live because of him. Can I talk to you about that? Everybody has a gap in their life. They know there's something wrong. They want more in life, and they just don't know how to get it and where to look. Lastly, are we speaking up? While I believe we must become better listeners, we are also to speak up. That is, to verbalize the good news of the gospel. I often hear people say, basically, you know, I witness by my life and not by my words. But we really miss it if that's the case. It's not only our life. Yes, that's very important, but our words are. One of the fine writers of the past, and maybe you're not aware of him, is Elton Trueblood. 
Elton Trueblood wrote beautifully in a book called The Company of the Committed, and this is what he says about this point. And I have it on the slide because it's so awfully good. He says, the person who says naively, I don't preach, I just let my life speak, is insufferably self-righteous. He says, none of us is good enough to witness by our life alone. And I say, amen. Look for natural opportunities to share faith with others. You have a unique story to tell every one of you, no matter if you're younger or older. And people want to hear your story and do it with love and kindness and gentleness and sensitivity. Tell them how your work has changed, how your life is more meaningful, your relationships. Tell them. People want to know a gentle, authentic story of your life. One of the best resources recently on this, I think I have a picture of this up here, is written by a friend of mine. I was blessed to be with him this last weekend and endorse this book. It's called Workplace Grace. Becoming a Spiritual Influence at Work. And I encourage you, if you're looking for an an encouraging resource, because the vast majority of our time is spent in the workplace, whether it's volunteer, whether it's home, whether it's a corporate office, whether it's at school, that's our workplace. And Bill Peel and Walt Larimer have done a fabulous job of tone and ideas of how can we proclaim the gospel where we spend the vast majority of our time. I want to encourage you to follow up on that and to help each other grow in Christ. See, sharing our faith is not only an individual enterprise, it is also a collective one. As a local church, we proclaim the gospel in word and deed, and I received this amazing email last week, and I've got to share it with you. Can I share it with you? It's from Carly, and she said I could use her name, and she grew up in this church, and she describes it in her email, and now she's in North Carolina in grad school. And this is what she says. Listen carefully. It's so good. It's a little longer, but I've got to read it and close it. She says, when I was young, my dad tucked me into bed each night and prayed with me. I knew we were talking to God, but it never occurred to me that this was a radically wonderful thing to do. As I was finishing high school, I realized three things. One, not everyone believed in the sovereign creator God. Two, a lot of people said they believed in him. And three, often these people were indistinguishable from one another. And she says, I got to thinking about it, and I realized that this whole God thing was either some kind of foolish, wishful thinking, or it was the most important, crucial, critical, powerful truth that could or would ever be. She says, it seemed wrong to me that my life did not reflect this amazingly mind-blowing thing. So she said, I got down on my knees. I did the scariest thing I have ever done. I prayed. Something to the effect, God, are you real? I need to know you because that changes everything, but I've got to be sure. And she said, this is everything or nothing for me. And she said, the Holy Spirit was all up in that moment. And by some crazy miracle, God has made me his. She says, basically, I say all of this to say thank you. Many, many people, many in this room, Faithfully planted seeds of God's truth in my heart for years before this salvation moment happened in me. Though they may never see the fruit of their good work, I hope that they know that I believe now and know that their work is so valuable, I am eternally grateful. That's awesome. What a privilege we have, individually and collectively, to share the glorious news to a broken world, a world that needs hope, meaning, purpose, and wholeness. And we have the message that makes that possible. 
Sharing our faith is not as scary as we think. It's one of the most amazing privileges imaginable. So let's share it in the power of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. This morning, we are gathering around the Holy Communion table. I think this is a really good response to this message. Not only is it a sense of great thanksgiving, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by faith alone in Christ alone and His atoning work on the cross, this moment should be a moment that ignites thanksgiving and joy in our hearts. That we have been rescued from separation from God. We have been given forgiveness of everything we have ever done or ever will do. And that we receive new creation life. That's why it's called the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. But Paul also says, friends, that when we take the bread and dip it in the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. That's a symbol of the whole gospel. We proclaim the gospel until he comes. So Holy Communion is a reminder of not only our own thanksgiving, but that we are called to proclaim the greatest news imaginable to a lost world. So as we come this morning... And gather around the Holy Communion table. May we experience anew the freshness of our salvation in Christ. And may we renew our hearts to share the good news of Christ with our friends at school, with our neighbors, with our family members, with those we work with every day in the cubicle next to us as God leads us. So I want to pray and I'm going to invite you to come to the Lord's Communion table. We have stations around the auditorium. The gluten-free ones are in the back. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are invited to come to the Holy Communion table. And may I say, if you are not sure you're a Christian, if you've not embraced the good news, as I pray for blessing, may you reach out to God and simply receive his grace and forgiveness. And then, in being a follower of Jesus, I can't think of a better way to begin that new relationship with Jesus than to celebrate Holy Communion. And if you're not ready yet, I encourage you to stay and ask God to speak to you. No one thinks less of you. In fact, we have more respect for people who are honest than people who fake it here, okay? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. May we receive it in a deeper way, your grace. And may we proclaim it with love and kindness and sensitivity to others this week. And I pray, Father, for those who may not know you this morning, who've never embraced the gospel of grace, may the Holy Spirit speak into their hearts that you love them, you died for them, you shed your blood for them, and you want to forgive them by your grace. Holy Spirit, bring new life to hearts separated from you. And we pray you bless the elements of the vine and the bread for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So all of our his this morning come to the Holy Communion table. I'd like you to gather in groups as we celebrate this wonderful opportunity of praise. Please come.